Welcome back to Mud Between Your Toes Year Ender 2020. My year enders include the highlights from all the past episodes from Season 2. In today's episode, you can listen to segments from my interviews with Innocent Motanga, Tertius Myberg, Bruno Hansen, and the war correspondent David Fox. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my guest today lives here in Hong Kong. He and I couldn't possibly have come from a more different background. Innocent Mutanga was the first refugee to graduate from a university in Hong Kong, gaining a degree in anthropology from the prestigious Chinese University of Hong Kong. And for the past year, he's worked as an analyst at an investment bank. So, Innocent Matanga, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited for this conversation and uh, it's something that I've, you know, I've thought about and looking forward to, you know, uh, I hope, uh, you know, at the end of these few minutes, we can be able to, you know, inspire each other, get to know more about each other and, you know, people can get to know me, more about me as well. But first, I want to discuss the refugee situation here in Hong Kong. As I understand it, Hong Kong isn't a signatory to the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees and actually has no legal framework governing the granting of asylum. So can you tell us how you ended up as a refugee here in Hong Kong? Uh, well, I mean, I was, you know, I was back in Zimbabwe and, uh, you know, things were, you know, politically and economically, things weren't really quite uh, in a positive way. And, uh, you know, I was one of the few people, many people actually, who were involved in trying to make the country uh, a better place in the way we believe to be. Uh, and that didn't sit well with the government. You know, got kidnapped, escaped, and then, uh, you know, went to the airport, first flight, and then I was in Hong Kong. Stop, stop, stop. Did you say you got kidnapped? Yes, I was. Um, I was. I think, I think right now what's happened actually on the media, actually there's a recent... There's already a recent journalist who's even gotten kidnapped now. I mean, it's, that was the norm then, you know, a lot more kidnapping happening at that particular point. Um, you know, I thought things have died out now, but it seems like it's coming up again. Apparently today there's been a lot more arrests uh, of journalists. Um, and in a sense, so you arrived in Hong Kong in 2013, age 21, with 25 US dollars in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was that's what I came with. You know, that's what I came with. You know, it was a very expensive place, of course. Yeah, but I, I you know, uh, you know, I managed to you know to to make it and survive. You know, for that particular time, and uh, uh, you know, I was homeless on time. But uh, you know, in the end, it's uh, you know, I you know, I spent that time wisely as well. You know, I think I think you don't need to pay to sit in a library in Hong Kong. So I guess that's what I spend my time doing at that particular point, sitting in libraries and reading books, you know, as long as I could not borrow them. Yes, I understand, but I was, you know, at least I could read them and enjoy a free air conditioner. So I think that was, uh, that's how I spend my time at that particular point. You know, it's incredible people who do arrive here as refugees uh, because Hong Kong is not a, a signatory to the UNHCR. Yeah, yeah. Refugees in Hong Kong actually aren't allowed to work. And I know what a lot of people say. Why should refugees be allowed to work and take away jobs from locals? But actually, if refugees were allowed to work, then they could at least support themselves and not become such a burden on the state. That is until... Innocent Matanga came along, um, and you kind of changed that, didn't it? Didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, in in some way, yes. I mean, but you know, there were people, of course, before me who were, who have been working hard to to make some changes and you know gaining traction. You know, but my my approach was you know going through to study, you know, and um, you know, and and you know, getting I ended up getting a, a residence as well. You know, and that would never really happen before, um, but you know. Um, and then I think also recently the government has been uh, offering people opportunities to uh, not really offer the opportunities, but to review and say, okay, you can work. We'll give you permission to work at this particular time. So I think things have been, um, you know, in many ways, you know, despite being still unfavorable, but in many ways things have gotten better. Um, you know, if, even if I hear stories of people who came here in the you know, 2005 and you know, things were really bad then. Uh, you know, there was not even any form of assistance from the government as well. Um, and, um, 
you know, but recently, you know, I mean, with time and time, it seems like uh, more Hong Kong people are caring and knowing about these particular issues. And they are coming in and they are, you know, being able to actually push the government as well to make some changes, you know, be it to, through legislation or be it through just normal discussions and conversations. So in a way, things have been getting better. I mean, the efforts that the refugees themselves have been putting uh, have been in many ways paying off, you know, otherwise, you know, it would have been, you know, it would, it would have been still be tough because, you know, as you highlighted, uh, Hong Kong is not a signature to the 1951 uh, convention. You know, what that implies and how the government also sees it is that they don't see anybody as a refugee at all in the first place. You know, it's a, it's a fantastic story. And, and you chose anthropology and, of course, you now work in finance. How on earth does anthropology and finance coexist? Um, well, I mean, for, you know, anthropology, I mean, for me, you know, I don't see any particular, you know, contradiction in it in the first place. I think it's more, uh, you know, it's all about people. I think everything that people do is really much about people. Anthropology being the study of people or the start of cultures, whatever people are defining this, you know, in a way, it gives you a sense of how, you know, the world works and, you know, in financial, uh, uh, finance itself gives it a different perspective as well. So in a sense, it's, uh, it's to me, it's still sort of the same, uh, a different way, but still looking at the same things. I think whatever in we happen, you know, usually it's really driven by people, be it ideology, um, you know, it's driven by people. Um, and, um, you know, I think I'm, even in, in many ways, I'm an underdog. I'm an underdog who actually is at an advantage uh, because I get to see some of the things uh, which are, uh, aren't usually easy to see in many ways because it gives them that holistic perspective you know and and what about hong kong i mean do you find that there's institutionalized racism here in hong kong because actually in a recent south china morning post article you said from my experiences here it's not racism i think a better word is classism hong kong society favors those with money and status and treats anything that's different with suspicion and fear you know, fear, suspicion, and curiosity. That's another, another, another word. So, so, you know, when people see me, you know, usually there's a lot more curiosity. Like, oh my God, look at this guy. You know, and they want to sort of understand, like, why your skin color is like this? Why your hair is like this? You know, what, what about that? You know, but at the same time, there is a bit more fear in it. Like, it's a bit more suspicion in it. But the curiosity, I think, um, is what is special about, uh, about Hong Kong in many ways. Um, you know, the, the, the curiosity that is there, you know, it's not like I've already painted you this, you are that, but it's like, you know what, I know people say this, I know there is this belief about this, but I'm quite curious. Um, so I've seen that. So it's kind of like a mix. And I feel like people maybe need to come up with different terms for it. Innocent, what is your ultimate mission as far as, and, and I think these are your words, rebranding black, especially how black men are portrayed in the media and through the school system? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, you, know, I, you know, as I say, you know, like rebranding blackness, you know, historically black has been seen negatively. You know, uh, and this was uh, the branding of blackness as something negative was uh, part of the colonial project, uh, which looked to justify uh, the colon, you know, the, the whole colonial project. Like, okay, the black man is inferior, they need civilization. Uh, the black man, um, you know, is, is the savage. You know, they've got these instincts that needs to be uh, in a way, you know, be removed in some way through Christianity. Um, so, so it's a, so there was that image that was created uh, of black people, um, you know, which has stayed. It's a brand that was made um, and largely to to justify slavery, to justify colonialism of uh, dangerous black people who needs to be only a whip can keep them in check and all that different things. So those things have gone. That was those are deliberate efforts. So I think now, at least the African themselves, it's their turn now to. To rebrand, you know, to change that brand and to show that, uh, you know, see black people just for who they are, people like any other person, right? You know, uh, not as uh, as these dangerous people, these people are needing in handouts and all different things. So in a way, I think um, for, for me, the whole, you know, mission or rebranding black lies in that. And why now, um, 
you know, I see a change, a shift in global order. Honestly, I think there is still a lot of work to be done in terms of rebranding blackness. Um, but I think there is more potential in Asia than in Western Europe because uh, Western Europe and the US is so embedded. Uh, the racism and white supremacy there is so embedded that it's so hard to challenge. Well, I mean, I wish you all the best for the Africa Center and I really hope to see you down there sometime for a cookery class or a fiery discussion. Uh, but, <laughs> but actually, we're out of time. Innocent Matanga, thank, thank you so you much for you, joining Tom. me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the it's been It's been an absolute pleasure listening to a Zimbabwean accent as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, that's great, that's cool, that's cool. <laughs> In episode 10, I spoke to pilot Tertius Myberg from his home in Canada. Hello. In late 2019, in the city of Wuhan, a city of some 11 million people, the coronavirus outbreak was first documented. Despite the city going into rigid lockdown, the virus silently crept along motorways and flight routes to kill health workers in Italy, farmers in Brazil, retirees in Seattle. Borders across the globe shut down and all commercial flights were cancelled, leaving thousands of people stranded in strange lands, far from their loved ones. Crucially, many foreigners began to run out of money and reports emerged of racial abuse to many third world people stuck behind borders in alien lands. The China city of Wuhan had some 150 South African and Zimbabwean nationals desperate to come home. But with all flights to South Africa at a standstill, their future looked bleak. This is the extraordinary story of how one man and his cell phone in Canada rescued a group of Africans stuck in China because of the pandemic. Enter Tertius Myberg. So Tertius, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. I really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure. I asked Tertius how he managed to repatriate hundreds of South Africans and Zimbabweans who were stuck in China with the help of Air Zimbabwe's only functional Boeing 737. So you can't charter an aeroplane from SAA. Um, right. Funny enough, a place like Africa, it's not like uh, uh, Europe or, or the Americas where there's a lot of private operators with this type of aeroplane that can do these distances that you can phone up charter companies and say, hey, give me your Boeing 767 and off we go. It doesn't exist in Africa. Um, so the only other airline, I was even fiddling with Air Namibia because they've got an Airbus A330, but the funny enough is they don't have the means to cross any ocean. Um, they can do Frankfurt out of Windhoek but that's all over land, so they've got bailout points, so their operation isn't geared for, for flying over uh, uh, open ocean. It's a thing called ETOPS that comes into play then, and they're not uh, uh, um, certified for it. So I can't use them. So where else do I go to? Um, and I ended up with ESM, uh, uh, and I've, I've known the guys at ESM for a while. Um, my times in South Africa, I had a lot of dealings with them where we would um, lease aircraft to them as an interim measure while the airplane might be in service because it was a vital thing for them to keep the Harare Johannesburg run going uh, and because they didn't do much more than that. I think they still had Dar es Salaam, but that's about it. And the internal flights um, in Zim itself. So it was uh, uh, vital for them to keep Harare Johannesburg going which we assisted them on numerous times. So I knew the, 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 the management of, of ESM pretty well, and I contacted them, and I said, listen, I know for a fact that beautiful 767 of yours is just parked there. Can't we use the thing? And they said, yes, of course we can use the thing. They open for any business. Um, then I went, tried to make it uh, easy for myself, and I said, listen, I want to go to um, Asia. Um, and I had a few ideas on where we could go to and I asked for a few quotes and the quotes were horrendous that they sent back to me and I said, jeepers, no, the, you know, people won't be able to afford this. This is, this is crazy money. Um, 
which ended up me telling them, listen, I'll just take the airplane. Just lease the airplane with your crew. You cover the insurance and you send the engineer and you cover the uh, 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 um, maintenance on this airplane. All the rest, I'll sort out. I'll source fuel. I'll do the clearances myself. I'll do catering. I'll do everything to, to, to keep the costs down. And, so and, a, and, and is it is it manned by a Zimbabwean crew or a crew that you choose from South Africa? No, or? It's, it's all Zimbabwean crew, from the cabin crew, the engineers that fly with the cockpit crew. Everybody are Zimbabweans, and I must say, jeepers, they are unbelievable chaps. Um, the, the the effort uh, um, they've put in into this whole thing that 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 I've started. Um, the whole effort the government has put into this because, you know, all my clearances now, because Air Zimbabwe is a Zimbabwe government entity, they get a, we got a lot of support for this, for these flights to happen on their airplane from their diplomatic channels all over Asia. And they actually pretty well connected um, from Malaysia, Singapore, you name it. They, they very well connected there and, and, um, uh, they facilitated 90% of all the clearances um, to make these flights happen because for them, it was an opportunity to show the world that this misgivings that they've got about the ability of the airline, because you must now think there's a lot of things being said about Air Zimbabwe. And in actual fact, they, they, these guys are, are, are world-class. They've got, I think they're the highest, uh, 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 um, time pilots on the 767s anywhere in the world because you know like the one captain has been flying it since they got that thing brand new in 1990 from Boeing um, you know he's been 30 years on his aeroplane that's his aeroplane um, uh, where anywhere else in the world if somebody's on a 767 eventually he'll progress in his career and he might now be flying 787s or 747s or whatever so he only hangs around the 767 for a, a period um, where these guys have been on the, 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 the uh, 767 for 30 years, you know, since they, 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 they got the thing from, 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 from uh, Boeing. Um, and and I, so suppose, it, I suppose, Tersh, is the fact that this 30-year-old plane had been used by former President Robert Mugabe from time to time, well, actually more than just time to time, um, yes. must have made a big that difference with uh, the crew and everything. <laughs> it was his airplane. It was called the Chimani Mani, wasn't it? Or is that another Correct. plane? They've got two yeah. of them. They've got two of them. Oh, they have the two, other one is they? now okay. currently in, 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 in maintenance. It's, I don't know when it will be able to fly, but this one, Chimani, Chimani Mani, is um, the one with the new color scheme painted and, and, and so on. So it's a, it's a well-looked-after uh, uh, example. Um, and, um, but they are, they, they, I must say, um, uh, they are awesome. And, and, and they got on board with this because they, they, they had a feeling that, that this will get out in the world and it will show the, the possibilities of their airline um, it'll show the help that 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 this, the, the Zimbabwean government can can offer even to just their neighbours. We then started running like a taxi service. We would get ourselves out to Manila and start working our way back. So we went Manila to Hanoi and Vietnam. We picked up there. We then went hopped across to Cambodia. We picked up there. We then on our way home stopped in the Maldives and we picked up there. And eventually we get back. And that's how we would fill the aeroplane up with whoever wanted to to get on board. You know, it's uh, I knew the seven six seven was well looked after. You know, um, the the thing with with her is they 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 moved for many years. Robert Mugabe and the current president all over where they need to be. Um, and and they they do a lot of effort in looking after this airplane. So I was I was pretty sure this was uh, um, well maintained and 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 ready to go. We then 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 wanted to go and fetch the Chinese group. So we then worked with the Zimbabwean embassy in Beijing and getting all our authorizations to go to China. 
So to pay for the flight going there, I made contact with the Thai embassy in South Africa and we loaded a whole bunch of Thai nationals on the aeroplane in South Africa and they paid for the flight into uh, Bangkok. Once we landed in Bangkok, the crew realized there's an oil leak on the left-hand engine and they, 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 they can't fly it like this. They first need to have a look what's going on there. So now we, we were flying with three engineers with and with the limited tools that they had with them on a flight like this, there was a special tool to, that they needed to get behind a certain panel in this engine to see and what they were hoping for is the hoses that are running behind this panel somewhere there one perished or uh, something like that where the, the, the oil is leaking out. So we then delayed our flight out of China and we got new pipes and hoping it's the pipes, new pipes and the special tool to open up that panel. We got that ship to Bangkok out of Harare. That took about a week to accomplish, to get that through customs and into Harare. In the meantime, I've placed the crew in a, in a quarantine hotel in Bangkok. Now you must remember that now becomes my problem because poor Air Zimbabwe, they can't channel money anywhere overseas. They can't send money to anyone because of the sanctions. So they can't even pay a hotel to put the crew in. So that fell on to me to, to, to sort out. Wow. Um, and it's so sad, actually, Peter, you know, if you think about the entity and the capabilities that Zimbabwe has actually got, and they just want to make business, and, 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 and they can't. They physically can't. It's, it's impossible for them. But that's, that's a story for another day. But in any case, so we put the guys up in the hotel there. We got the tool there, and eventually they opened up that panel, and they said, oh, the pipes are perfect. It's not the pipes. It's now the main shaft that runs the compressor blades. That bearing is leaking all the, 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 the oil out of that engine. The other 767 in Harare is not flyable, so, um, but there is two spare engines in storage in Harare in the maintenance center. Of Now I've delayed the people out of China already for a week. Now they are running out of money. They, a lot of them have got nowhere to stay. They've got no money for food. They've lost their jobs in China. The Chinese aren't renewing their visas. Some of them get locked up because their visas are expiring and they can't pay the penalties because they just stuck to the book. The book was written before COVID-19. If you've got an expired visa, you can't pay the penalties, then so be it. If you go to prison, they can't deport you. There's no airlines flying. So there you sit in prison. Um, so it was becoming a, 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 a humanitarian crisis in China. Babies, pregnant ladies, and it was just dire for these people. And, and I then said, okay, I spoke to the Zimbabwe embassy and the one chap that I became big friends with, he's the first secretary of the embassy there, Gary. I said to him, listen, in that group there in Wuhan, because they've now moved to Wuhan from wherever they were in China. They've given up their accommodation where they were. They've now spent the last bit of money on paying the $1,000 I charged for the ticket to get back. Um, and they were really in, in, in a dire situation where I was also getting a lot of flack from um, the Chinese authorities on having people on airport floors living there absolutely i mean what a nightmare and and the and the the, the 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 passengers as you said there were babies involved there were school children yeah it was a mess it was an absolute mess so i had a handful of people that said they can't do a transfer for the tickets so i said no by all means bring cash with and give it when you check in but you're on the list don't worry um, so those people, I, I sent Gary to them. I said, there's the name. Go and grab the cash from them. 
Because now I know I can't pay by credit card or do a wire transfer or anything like that for buses to take these people away from the airport to a hotel. So Gary grabbed the cash and he organized buses and off we went. Our first trip out of the airport to the hotels, now you're talking about more than about 120 odd people, 140 people. Um, we only could only find 24-seaters. So there was a whole convoy of 24-seaters running down the streets of who I'm looking for hotels. Um, and eventually we got to a hotel that was empty. Um, a beautiful hotel that was empty. And we said, well, there all the, 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 the 24-seaters park in front of the reception area. And Gary walks in with his phone in his hand and said, we're taking the whole hotel, please. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they gave me a relatively good rate by taking the whole hotel. Um, they included breakfast in the rate. And then I arranged a $6 dinner for each person every night. Um, I said, listen, I can't do drinks as well. You know, if you want something to drink, you either have to buy your own Coke or drink tap water. That's, <laughs> this is what I can do. And it eventually ended up where I had them in hotels in Wuhan for, uh, I think it's about three weeks. I then had to also pay Thai Airways technical for their technicians to assist the three engineers we've got there because this is a it's a major undertaking pulling an engine and, and replacing an engine so we had to have extra hands um so it, it was a, a a massive logistical nightmare and a financial nightmare i was really stressing out the last three days of of getting this engine on and uh, uh, getting it flyable again because I was I was really running out of out of money and and, and options there by the end I was I was really 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 running out of options at the end so so right okay. there at the at the at the end um, uh, we 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 just it was close before I, I I couldn't carry it anymore but yeah we 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 managed and we did it there's always ways and means of of getting something done it's 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 these days too easy to just give up and say no this is going to be too too much um there is always but always and 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 that's the thing i want to get out to everybody and anybody is there's always options available to you always regardless of what's going on there's always other options well it's a truly magical story uh maybe you should start writing now that you've got some time on your hands yeah <laughs> we, oh, I'm we, a slow typer, right? <laughs> <laughs> we had better go now because we're running out of time but uh, Tertius, uh, Tertius okay, thank you for joining me on conversations with Pete Wood we all know the adage about the cup being half empty well my guest today is undoubtedly a cup half full kind of guy He's one of the most inspiring men I've ever had the honor of interviewing. Bruno Hansen is without a doubt proof that whatever life throws at you, just calm down and carry on. Born in Zimbabwe or formerly Rhodesia in 1971, Bruno grew up on the shores of Lake Kariba. By all accounts, it was a bucolic beginning to life, but that was short-lived. Bruno Hansen, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Hi, Peter. Thanks. That was a, a lovely introduction. Thanks for making me sound so um, fantastic. And um, I, I think I might just add to that with the, heart, the cup half full, the cup half empty thing. I think a friend of mine once long ago said to me, Bruno, you're the kind of guy that just drinks the rest of the cup when it's half full and <laughs> swigs it back. So that just brought back an old memory. Thanks. So there's more to do with an empty cup. <laughs> well, I think but I keep an drinking. An empty cup, yeah. well, well earned. Yeah, exactly. Well earned. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. Bruno, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's uh, great to speak it's with a, a fellow Zimbabwean. It's an absolute pleasure. Bruno, let's not beat around the bush. You're paralyzed from the waist down following a botched carjacking in Cape Town 22 years ago. Let's get to the carjacking a little later. For now, can we dial back to the 3rd of September, 1978, 
and the first traumatic event that changed your life. Can you please tell us about that horrific day? Yeah, sure. Um, I, we were living in Lake Kariba in Zimbabwe or Rhodesia in those days. And it was an amazing lifestyle that, that I had really, you know, walking to school where there were elephants and baboons in the road and, um, you know, nightly, the nightly showing um, down in the valley of, of sort of skirmishes between the armed forces and the terrorists. And I used to watch the tracer, the tracer bullets flying through the air as a seven-year-old, you know, wondering why bullets flew uh, so slowly. And um, so that was the kind of growing up in, in Kariba. But I think my parents knew that things were getting um, a little bit dodgy. Um, and so they hopped on an airplane and were going to fly to, uh, I think it was South Africa, I think at the time, or you know, via Salisbury, I think, um, to go to the Australian embassy and we're gonna apply to, to move to Australia. And so I was staying with my aunt and uncle. We dropped them at the airport, waved, waved the, the, the airplane off, you know, very exciting in those days when you went to an airport. And uh, we went back home. And I remember, remember sitting on the floor, on the carpet, and the radio was on, the news was on. And then the, the bulletin came on and said, the Hanyani flight, whatever it was, 851, whatever it was. 825. Eight, 825, was it? Yeah, the, the, the Viscount 825 has been shot down. Uh, no known survivors. But uh, that, was the, that was the start of um, something that sort of seemed to carry on in my life. You know, I mean, there were, there were four crew and 52 passengers on board. Um, mm. Actually, 38 died in the crash. But, right, okay. Um, but your parents survived. But the, the, the nightmare didn't actually end um, after the crash of the plane. No. I mean, funny enough, I was just talking to my dad about it the other day, uh, a couple of days ago, about the whole plane crash. And uh, where do I begin with this? Um, you know, they were the only husband and wife to survive together. So everyone lost someone on that plane. So the, the plane crashed. Um, a lot of people sort of survived the crash because the plane flipped. The, the guy landed it perfectly. John Hood, the, the pilot, landed the plane and then it hits a donga, like a hole in the ground, and the plane flipped and broke in half. So some of the people survived in the tail section and they are the four, I think, four or five that went out to a village looking for water. My parents stayed behind at the plane crash site helping the survivors, um, you know, that were, some of them went a really bad way. And that's when the terrorists arrived, the terrorists arrived and then lined everyone up and sort of executed everybody and, and shot them, then bayoneted them. Um, and my parents just lay, lay there pretending to be dead. And um, they survived it and spent a couple of days out there um, before the paratroopers came in and found them. Um, Within that small story, there's, of course, a long version of what they went through. Uh, but to survive the plane crash, then to survive the shootings, then to survive the stabbings, and then to survive the hyenas, it was almost, it was their time was, was not. Uh, I mean, so they clearly witnessed the whole entire oh, thing. Oh, they witnessed everything. They witnessed everything. My dad was saying, you know, and my mom was telling me that, um, you know, just a meter away, you know, they were lying there. She, would, she was looking at the guy's boots and while he macheted someone to death. Um, and I think from that, from that instance of what they went through and survived it, 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 um, it, it taught me something, you know, how, how trauma is not necessarily a bad thing, how it can make you grow as a person, and how it can, you know, st strengthen your belief in, in, in something different in the world, whatever that is, let's call it supernatural, let's call it the X factor, let's call it God, whatever we want to call it. There's something out there on this planet and in this universe, which we don't know about. And I think that event that they went through, and then me not really understanding it as a child, but then it was, I got affected when I saw them in hospital. When I saw them in the hospital afterwards, that's when I remember crying for the first time because um, that was all new to me. But um, I think that was a training ground for what I went through later in life. You know. Understandably, you left uh, Kariba and moved to South Africa, thus beginning probably some of your happiest years of your life. 
becoming a teenage beach bum? Yeah, yeah, basically some of the happiest days of my life, but some of the most disturbing as well, you know, straight from a war zone, straight into an apartheid era, which I didn't understand. The, I would say that my teenage years in South Africa were the happiest and the people I grew up with at school, those are like my brothers now and we're displaced around the world. Um, but at sometimes it was quite traumatic in South Africa as well. I was a Roynek, you know, going yeah. to an Afrikaans school in the north. Uh, I was beaten a lot of the time. I was peed on a lot of the time. Um, that book, The Power of One, I read that book, saw the movie, and I saw myself in there, as I'm sure many other English kids do. When we left after the air crash and we went down to South Africa, we went down to a place called Port Alfred. And that's where the first time I saw the ocean properly. And I looked at the ocean and I knew this is what I want. I, I did schooling in South Africa, um, grew up on the South Coast, uh, surfing, spearfishing, diving. And then I, I studied through the Navy and ended up working at sea for the SAF Marine. And, and sailed to Japan, Taiwan, Korea, uh, Singapore as a 19-year-old. As a well, you've and really packed things in, haven't you? <laughs> uh, you know, just living fast. Yeah, so I did that for a number of years, two, two, three years, while I studied for the Navy. And then I had to owe them time back. And so I got a free education out of it, which was great as an engineer. And, um, and then I decided to, uh, yeah, just pack a bag, take a surfboard and head out into the wilds. And I went to Indonesia and, and, and then I got called up to the Navy in Denmark because I have a Danish passport. So I got suckered back into the Navy in Denmark. Um, so I had to leave that big trip, go and do my military service in Denmark. And on, in the military service, I wrote a letter, an actual physical letter, which I've, we've all forgotten how to do. And I wrote to, to these people that I was on the boat with. Somehow I had their address. And I said, I'd like to come back and work on the boat as a boat boy and I'll work for free. I said, just, I'll work for free. I just want to be able to surf and, and eat. And so they said, yes, come. And I arrived. I had to make my way back out to Indonesia after military service uh, to one of these small islands called Nias. Um, I met the yacht out there. And that, that, week took me, uh, that trip took two weeks just to find the boat. And then unbeknown to me, after three months of working on the boat, they made me the captain. And I became the youngest surf charter yacht captain in Indonesia at the time. And that was where my life really took off in, in, a, in the happiness mode of being paid quite a bit to wear board shorts and surf the best waves in the world and to take people surfing. And life couldn't be any better. Oh, but then the second yeah. most traumatic event happened in 1998, probably, hmm. arguably, the, the biggest event of all. You know, I think I look back on it. Yeah, it was a big event. Uh, you know, I got paralyzed from the waist down. But it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me, to be honest. And in, in one of, uh, I did a human, the humans documentary with uh, Jan Altus Breton, that's the French guy. And um, when they were interviewing me, I said that uh, if I, if God himself jumped down in front of me right now and said, Bruno, I'll give you back your legs, but you forget everything that you've learned over the past 20 years. You know, I'll just tell God to keep his legs because it's been an amazing journey. And so I was working on this surf charter yacht. Uh, God, it was an amazing lifestyle. It was really amazing. I felt I'd gone back in time and it was exciting. It was amazing. I had really had to man up and fix things. And it's a dangerous situation, you know, on a yacht out in the middle of the wilds and picking people up, taking them around. There's no marinas, you know, it doesn't exist. Mm. Out in the west coast of Sumatra is very wild still to this day. But in the late 90s, it was extremely wild. And, um, and so what happened was I flew back to South Africa to meet the boss, uh, the owner of the yacht, who was quite a wealthy man. And I was quite ambitious. I knew that uh, surfing in that part of the world was going to take off. So I wanted to uh, buy a big catamaran. And I wanted him to pay for it. And I would put the work into it. And I would then own half the boat. And I wanted to be half of the business, of the surf charter business. And then, of course, I, I, you know, we could expand this business. So I was ambitious. As much as I worked for free and I was just a boat boy and then became a captain that got paid, I was very ambitious. I wanted to do great things. And, um, and it was on that trip in Cape Town on the way back to the airport early morning. I was driving with a girl and we got carjacked. We were in a convertible and we, we were in an attempted carjacking that went horribly wrong and these guys botched it. 
and the car flipped, landed on the roof, and from there, I broke my back, and the girl I was with got badly burnt. Um, the actual hijackers came back for us and started beating me quite badly while I was still stuck in the car with my legs stuck under the seat with a seatbelt on, hanging upside down. They dragged me out and were beating me, and then the car started rocking on the roof, and they really dragged the girl out. Uh, let's call her Samantha. I won't give her give the proper name, but Samantha dragged her out and she was lying there. And of course, these guys wanted to do some strange things with her. And the car then rolled. And as the car rolled back down the bank, I was half out the window. That's what broke my back. And the car landed on top of her. And then I listened to her scream for about four hours while I was in another consciousness before somebody found us. And um, yeah, and so that was a start of of a of a dark, dark road that I went on for a number of years, um, trying to find out who I was, where do I belong? I have no money. I was broke, mentally broke, physically broke, financially broke. My parents were living in Uganda. They had lost their business in Zim again. They'd gone back to Zim and had a mind. They lost that and were now living in Uganda. So that was a really, really, uh, the start of a quite a difficult scenario. Um, and I ended up staying in England and England was really good to me. You know, I got uh, I got given a place to stay, and uh, they gave me about four hundred pounds a month, the government, and um, it helped me it helped me stabilize to be able to buy food, basically. But I still had this yearning of adventure, and I needed to go back out into the world, and so I decided I needed to cross the Indian Ocean on a yacht, and that's what that's what would keep me sane. But before before that decision, you know, I was ending up living in Mexico. I was doing heroin drinking a lot, living down in a place called Rio Nexpa. And that's where I tried to actually commit suicide twice. Didn't work. You, you, know? played, you played Russian roulette once, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I played Russian roulette with a bunch of gangsters and passed out. Uh, and then I tried to drown myself. And the drowning, trying to drown myself, I, I borrowed a longboard from this girl and this guy carried me into the water. And unbeknown to them, I was going to go and drown myself. And they thought I was just this paralyzed guy that was going out to try and just get some exercise and i was basically like gollum from lord of the rings i'm sure they i'm sure that the guys who wrote lord of the rings saw me on the beach because i was white skinny and soulless man i weighed must have weighed less than 60 kilos and i was this gecko looking dude and um you know i thought no girls are gonna want me i was on drugs i was losing my way my parents didn't know where i was and so i paddled out on this board threw myself off very dramatically, giving myself to God and let the world remember Bruno Hansen. <laughs> and all I did was bob around on the surface with my ass sticking out of the water like a cork because I was, I'm a floater, man. I don't sink, <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, for the life of me, I can't damn kill myself. And now I started getting a bit angry in the water, frustrating, frustrated. And so I was like, okay, okay. I know that I'm a good free diver. So what am I doing? Okay, breathe out, breathe out. Okay, breathe all the air out. Now sink to the bottom. Ah, I couldn't sink to the bottom. And there I am flailing around trying to pull myself to the bottom of the ocean. And I pop back to the surface, climb back on this longboard. Now I've got anger inside of me. And anger gave me determination. And I looked at the waves out at the back on the reef and I was like, right, I'm going to paddle out to these waves and I am going to drown myself. One of those waves on the head and I'm done for. Now bearing in mind, this is the first time I'm on a surfboard. So my legs are flopping around like frog legs hanging off the back of this uh, longboard. It was a 10-foot longboard. And I can barely paddle. So I must have paddled 50 meters, 50 yards from the shore. And now I'm trying to get out to the main waves. And there's no way on God's green earth I was going to make it out there. And so I'm, I probably moved out another 30 meters, right? Uh, so out of the lagoon zone into where the white water is coming through. And one of these small waves hit me on the side and twist, turned me, turned me facing the shore and it just bulleted me towards the shore. And that was the first wave I've ever caught after breaking my back. You know, those first few years being in a chair, having these dead legs, you know, having to learn to drag them around was quite a big thing, especially going in the ocean or in the, in a swimming pool. It was, I felt really heavy and, and just uncoordinated. But now I just feel like a mermaid or a merman, whatever you want to call it. Mm. It's so easy. I find it effortless now being in the ocean. I'm a huge advocate for healing with the ocean. You know, people that have got physical problems, mental problems, spiritual problems, I like to say, just get your ass in the ocean, get battered around in the waves, you know, get tired, let the ocean kiss you. That's, that's what I like to tell people. 
you speak a lot about small victories. Yeah, small victories, exactly. Mm. Everything in life is a small victory, isn't it? I think it's, uh, it's, um, but and, you know, if I get really honest with you, I, I preach a lot of these things, but I still go through very depressing patches. Yeah. And I'm very honest and open about this to people that I sort of guide and teach on my, when I, you know, I have a tough love situation, a tough love scenario towards people with problems. I'm like, guys, get off the chocolate and the Coca-Cola and spend more time in nature. And the ocean has the ability to heal so much. Yeah, Bruno, I spoke at the beginning about three major catastrophes that happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, okay, so we haven't even got to the third one yet. I mean, it's hard to believe what you've been talking to me about, but there is another story. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was Boxing Day 2004. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I had just crossed the ocean. <clears throat> 2004, you know. And you were paralyzed at this stage. Yes, so paralyzed in a wheelchair, um, <clears throat> you know, going through a quite a depressing depressive moment in time, of course, after Mexico, you know, where I caught that wave. Um, but <clears throat> now living in England and really depressed. Um, I was sliding. I was sliding back into the dark zone. Uh, I needed adventure. I needed, I needed sunlight. I needed the ocean. I couldn't just live a, a safe, sweet lifestyle. I was becoming soft. Um, and so, okay, that's a whole other story how I got to getting on this boat. But anyway, I climbed on a boat in Durban. <clears throat> it's another long, long story that leads up to that point, but we'll go straight to the crossing of the Indian Ocean where a very, very close friend of mine, he's a, my, my closest brother to me, James Taylor. Um, shout out to James, who saved my life on a number of occasions and saved my soul. He joined me to sail this boat across the ocean and I was going to be captain. So... We treasure hunted along the way. We lived on rice and fish. That's it. And we were poor sailors. We didn't have all the fancy equipment. We didn't have radar. We didn't have uh, proper autopilot. Nothing. We just, we went hardcore and we sailed this 46 foot catamaran that had been given to me to use. We sailed it across the ocean. We got to the other side in Thailand, the area that I knew from my previous years of being a, a surf charter captain where for three months of the year, we would take the boat to Phuket, Thailand, where we worked on the boat and then, of course, took it back down to Sumatra. So we arrived in Patong, in Phuket. We arrived after this one-year journey. And I was still a little bit afraid of the ocean because I realized being paralyzed, sailing on a yacht is not a joke. It's dangerous. It's, it's, it's hardcore. And I get battered a lot, especially the way I did it, with no money on this, you know, this rugged boat. So we arrive there and James flies back to, to Cape Town to spend time with his family to do Christmas with them. And that's when I got hit by the tsunami. Uh, anchored in the bay in, in Patong and there's no waves in that bay. It's normally flat as a pancake. But a two meter wave came through, then a four meter, then a six meter, then a 10 meter. Now, after the two meter wave, I realized something dramatic was happening. And so I cut the anchor line, didn't really know what I was doing. But I you know, started the engines and I got sucked into a big whirlpool of about a 100 meter diameter whirlpool. And that just spun me in circles and I couldn't fight this thing. Um, and then I sort of got slung shot out of it. And I just knew I had to get into deep water. That's the safest place to be with a boat is deep water. So it's sort of contradictory to, to, the in, to, to, to what we want to do. You know, the instinct goes against what our mental the mental side of us tells us to do because we want to stay on land where it's safe. But I, I made it over the four meter wave and then the six meter wave, uh, I made it over that. And then there's quite a famous picture that someone took of me. His name was also Bruno, by the way, funny, funny enough. And he was in the top of the hotel and took a number of pictures of me on the boat going over these waves. And so there's a, there's a postcard that floats around in Thailand of me going over the six meter wave. And I actually have it. I'll send it to you afterwards. But I've made it out and then the 10 meter wave came. This was a 30 foot monster that came breaking through the bay and I just made it over there. And I looked into the barrel of this wave and every surfer, you know, always looks for the barrel. And I looked into this 30 foot barrel and what went through my head was, oh, I could surf that. 
<laughs> you know, the brain works and so it works so fast in times of trauma. And so I made it out there and I sailed around on my own for a number of days. And James heard about this and then he flew back. He just came back into a devastation. And, um, and I somehow survived that <clears throat> by, I don't know how, because everyone died behind me on their boats. All the other people in the Patong yeah. Bay were killed. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. Also, a lot of people on boats around me, they just stayed on the anchor. And when that big wave came through, it just, it just evaporated them. It was so much power. But after that, it's, so that tsunami, I've always said that it's the most terrifying and the most beautiful situation that I've ever been in. But what it did was it dispelled my fear of the ocean because I realized that the ocean wasn't out to get me. I just survived. You know, I should have been the one dying. I'm alone, paralyzed on a yacht. How did I survive that? And I realized that it's very important in life to always be in the right place at the right time. And so always to keep a clear mind. And that is my big thing nowadays. And the, the ocean then, that tsunami taught me not to be afraid of the ocean anymore. And I sort of became fearless after that, if you want to call it that. And that's where I realized that we cannot have fear. We have to be fearless, but um, understanding of whatever we go into. Um, because I think fear is a subconscious we have that subconscious um, thing going on in our heads where we can attract um, negativity if we have fear. And I believe the opposite is true, that if we are just clear and remain positive and focused about something and determined and stubborn on a good way, and so we can, we can also attract into our lives by circumstance and meeting the right people at the right time and keeping fit and disciplined, we then you know, get to where we wanna be in life. And so that's, I think, how I've kept winning. In episode 12, I spoke to journalist David Fox about his years working as a war correspondent for the Reuters news agency. Hello, today's guest is no stranger to Mud Between Your Toes podcasts, nor is he a stranger to me. And yet, even though I've known David Fox since 1975, it struck me that I knew precious little about his 25-year career as a war correspondent. Obviously, I received snippets of news about David, but like so many friends, divided by distance, well, as they say, out of sight, out of mind. So it's with delight that I have David here with me today to talk about reporting in hostile environments and a few famous people thrown in for good measure. So David Fox, Welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks very much, Pete. And I'd just like to say for your uh, regular listeners, I'm one of the few people who actually recording in your studio, even if your studio happens to be a beautiful terrace overlooking a lovely Saikung Valley and one of the best-looking gardens in Hong Kong. Was it at Prince Edward or in Bulawayo where you first knew that journalism was in your blood? No, it was definitely at, at PE. I remember, I don't know if you remember, we used to get one copy of the Chronicle delivered to the uh, hostel every morning, uh, of the Herald, I beg your pardon, in, 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 at Salou House. And it was meant for the housemaster, but I used to you know, sneak out and try and read the newspaper before uh, Bill Cock got to read it. I was always fascinated by news. And, um, and especially when we were doing history, I, you know, I remember our big fat history teacher, Frank Cannon, as we used to call him. Uh, we were learning contemporary history, and, and that fascinated me. And I knew, I knew I wanted to be a journalist, even from a, a very early age. And of course, we grew up in a very uh, newsworthy country. I recall you mentioning a story about the murder of a Springbok rugby player. Yeah, indeed. That was, um, uh, that was uh, Andy McDonald. Uh, it was one of the. I was still a trainee in those days, and but I was based at the Chronicle in Bulawayo, and it was uh, at the end of uh, end of the war. But uh, while there were still uh, people being reintegrated into the army, and there was a group of um, a substantial group of uh, of uh, Zebra uh, commandos who were uh, being a bit recalcitrant, and they were raiding farms in Madabiniland, and um, and Andy McDonald was a. Uh, a former Springbok prop who rather infamously, or famously, I beg your pardon, uh, fought a lion with his bare hands and, uh, and killed it. And, but he had his, uh, two of his fingers bitten off in the process. 
but still went on to uh, represent the Springboks. And I was at school with his son, William, at junior school. And when, he was, uh, when his family were uh, murdered, uh, that was one of the first stories I covered. Uh, because I knew the family, I got out there and managed to speak to you know, some of the surviving relatives and that sort of thing. It was, you know, a grim subject to cut your teeth on, but uh, it was the sort of start of things to yeah, come. Yeah, very, very tragic, actually. But not all the stro- stories were tragic. I mean, you had quite a lot of fun, didn't you? Didn't you? Didn't you meet Bob Marley? <laughs> I, I did when he gave his Zimbabwe independence uh, concert. Uh, I went off. I was very much a junior reporter in those days, and uh, and accompanied. Uh, a much older uh, uh, veteran reporter. Uh, and we went to interview uh, Bob Marley, and uh, we had this you know, great scoop. I mean, there was no one else sort of interviewing, but we got into, uh, into the room with him, and, uh, and he lit up this enormous joint and said, here you go, you've got to smoke the weed. And, and of course, I was taking a lead from my... Uh, from my mentor, and he said, no, 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 I don't do this, you know, and, and Bob Marley said, if you don't do the weed, you don't get the news. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the rest was history, as they say, <laughs> David Pops. Mm. Uh, let's do a little bit of leapfrogging. So from London, you were transferred to Brussels and then to Nairobi. Now, um, I think we should discuss Nairobi. Sorry, Brussels, but it's kind of like that movie, it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium. Not much happened in Belgium, did it? Well, actually, to the contrary, because it was in Belgium when I was first getting... It was that my first real sort of conflict reporting was done from there. Um, I, was, uh, I was working as a sort of trade correspondent and, and doing foreign politics, but also doing NATO stuff. And so I was, you know, spending some time in, in, um, uh, Yugos- in what, former Yugoslavia, and, and also, I was sent off to uh, to the Great Lakes region for the first time as well. Uh, you know, just in the immediate uh, aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. Oh, that so that happened while you were while in I was the... in Belgium. I yeah. see. Yeah, I see. Because the Nairobi posting must have been, well, I don't know, one of the more exciting, given what was going on in Africa in oh, the absolutely. early 1990s. I mean, Mugabe, Mandela. Um, you know, it's fair to say that. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Africa must have been where you really sort of cut your teeth in conflict reporting and pretty scary situations. I, I, I you know, I had, I had started, I have to say, I started in Brussels, but uh, when I was uh, then uh, moved to uh, Nairobi, that's when it was just full on. It was absolutely full on. I mean, there was know. the DRC, there was the Somalia, genocide in Rwanda. Ah, Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea. Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me about your experience in Rwanda. Well, I wasn't there for the genocide itself. I was there, you know, in the immediate aftermath of it, when, um, you know, uh, you know, the Hutus massacred the uh, Tutsis and moderate Hutus as well, uh, and then the uh, Tutsis via the Rwandan, the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, invaded from Uganda and pushed the Hutus out into re- massive, massive, massive refugee camps in DRC. And so my experience was more covering that. But there was just, it was just, there were huge numbers of massacres. I mean, I, I, I remember Biaro refugee camp where there's 50,000 people were chopped into pieces. When you were based in Nairobi, wasn't there a fair amount of terrorist activity? Blimey, yeah. I mean, I had, uh, I'd been in, in uh, Nairobi as a uh, chief correspondent um, for about, about six, seven months before I took over as bureau chief after the uh, the great Nick Koch left, and uh, I'd only been in in the job, which is the, you know running the whole of East Africa for a couple of weeks, when I was parking the car in the office at Finance Tower when this massive explosion, and it was the uh, the bombings of the U.S. embassy in Nairobi, uh, which I, kick-started the whole thing globally, didn't it? That's really, really when Al Qaeda got on the map because at that point he was. Um, he was based in uh, northern Sudan. Osama bin Laden was, yeah. And that really, uh, that, that re- yeah, it, it was astonishing. It, you know, there was a massive explosion. It reminded me a lot of the one that, uh, the recent one in Beirut, actually. It just blew out city, you know, windows for blocks and blocks and blocks. Now, David, I know that you interviewed who, what I consider the holy trinity of Southern African leaders, Robert Mugabe, Ian Smith, and Nelson Mandela. Of the three, 
who was the easiest to talk to? Who was the most difficult? Who was the most interesting? Oh, that's a, that's a very good question, actually, Pete. I mean, uh, who the easiest, uh, the most interesting? And, and, and as we call them the Holy Trinity, well, I guess it, it, <laughs> and very unlike, maybe just the Trinity would be more appropriate. <laughs> Um, Mandela was a, was is, is obviously going to be uh, the, the easiest. I mean, he's he's someone who, who you know, really just he lit up a room whenever he was in it, uh, and he made you feel so special as if you were the centre of the world. I mean, uh, my cameraman, my photographer, and I, we were all just you know, we were starstruck, and I don't get starstruck very easily, and and I was with him. He was just astonishing, Every, and everybody around him. You know, from uh, you know, because we walked from one of his offices to another of his offices, and you know, he passed sort of doormen and cleaners, and you could just see as if he had this aura with him whenever he went. He was great to talk to, and he was um, a very easy interview, and and just a, an absolutely wonderful human being. Then you look at uh, Mugabe was just awful. I mean, I only had about ten minutes with him, and you could just see he hated having to do it. You know, he resented it. He was just, you know, when I. When his aides told him that I was from Zimbabwe, you know, I wasn't a foreign, you know, it made no difference to him, you know, I was still, you know, he, he mentioned it, he said, you are from Zimbabwe, but you are white, you know, it was quite clear that, that, you know, he just wasn't happy with the whole thing. And Ian Smith was, um, it was odd in a different way. I had a very easy interview with him. His son, Alex, um, uh, put me out with him. And, then, you know, I went, I went into his, um, into his house in Alexandra Park in, uh, in in Harare. There was no security. It was a very modest uh, sort of house, and uh, just off Second Street Extension. And um, uh, and he's, he was going, going into a time warp. All the the furniture in his house. I've got a photograph of me talking to him. And all the furniture in the house is uh, it's like a, a, it's a frozen time capsule from the 1960s. And he was. Um, he was getting a bit past it at that point, you know. He was a little bit doddery, and his, you know, his memory of how great things were for the whole country obviously didn't include black Zimbabweans, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, but he was interesting, and um, and it was, you know, I think interviewing him when he was in charge of the country would have been more dynamic and uh, more interesting. But uh, when he was basically nostalgic and it wasn't it wasn't he he was irrelevant by the time i interviewed him but he he was not going to say sorry for anything that he had done no he was quite unapologetic that's for sure and he was um he came down hard on mugabe as well in the interview and he said he liked mugabe at first um uh, but then he obviously had a change of tone as mugabe's tone changed as you know for a lot of us that was the same case so tell us about getting into Iraq. I, I I remember the moment that that war began because, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I think it was the most televised war in history, particularly from journalists, uh, as you said, reporting from both sides. And also, weren't there a whole lot of journalists in the Baghdad Hotel? Uh, it was the Palestine Hotel. Palestine Hotel. Did you ever make it that far? Well, I had to uh, because, I, as I said, I was working as a uni lad. I went into... Uh, I was based in Kuwait, and the three of us, we had an armoured uh, Land Rover Defender, which we called Brenda, Brenda the Defender. <laughs> and as soon as the invasion started, because we were, we were parked out, we were hiding on a farm right on the Iraqi border, and, you know, as soon as the invasion started, we just, it, our Defender looked like a British uh, Army Land Rover. So we just drove behind a tank and just invaded with them, and then sort of overtook them, and, um, and off we went. And we were roaming around for a good uh, ten or so days, uh, having you know some astonishing adventures and uh, and uh, you know having a lot of lucky escapes as well along the way. Um, when uh, the Americans were getting onto the outskirts of Baghdad, and uh, the uh, an American uh, tank battalion put a shell into the Palestine or a couple of shells into the Palestine Hotel, and blew up the Reuters office at the Palestine Hotel, killing uh, at a Parish, one of a, a good mate of mine, who was uh, our, you know, they they killed two of my colleagues and put the the other three out of action. They also did the same thing to the next door Al Jazeera office, and uh, I think it was Middle East News Agency was also uh, hit. 
And so suddenly there was an urgency for me to get into Baghdad, uh, you know, to take over the reporting from there, uh, which we, we, we had to do, which was an adventure in itself, actually. But um, we definitely of all the, the closest shaves we had in Iraq was every one of them was at the hands of the coalition troops, usually American troops. Tell us about driving Brenda the Defender into Saddam's, Saddam Hussein's palace in what would that have been in Tikrit? I, I've seen an incredible picture of a journalist swimming in an indoor pool surrounded by Rococo pillars and murals. Was that in Saddam's palace? And, and did you end up with any spoils of war? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. That journalist swimming in the pool wasn't me, actually. That was a few days after me. But uh, me and my colleagues, we were the first three journalists into his palace in, uh, in Tikrit, we, uh, which was the, 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 the Hussein family uh, village, if you like. But it had this huge sort of 150-acre uh, complex, which was full of luxury, luxury houses for him and his family and all the, you know, the, the favored executives of the, of the Ba'ath regime. And there was a great deal of... Uh, Tikrit fell uh, a good week or so after Baghdad. It was the last place to fall because it was defended by his most loyal troops. But we managed to get between the lines and uh, ended up at Saddam Hussein's palace. And we literally walked through the front door and it was, it was astonishing. I mean, I had a shower in his um, gold-plated... No. Um, yeah, I, we were filthy after being on the road. And we, <laughs> we luxuriated in fluffy towels and... You know, it was absolutely spectacular, and we, and he had this amazing pool table. We played pool there, and then I, I stole his pool cue. It, his it was pool, one of the, his pool cue. His pool cue. It was one of those cues that goes down, in, that breaks down into two pieces. So I, I unscrewed it and um, and uh, and shoved it underneath my uh, my uh, flak vest. Because the, the shelling was getting closer. It's hardly an exciting spoil of war, David. Well, I got a few other things as well. I actually removed the taps from one of his bathrooms. Oh, shit. Okay, you, <laughs> right, okay. Should you be telling us that? I got a, uh, a dining uh, a tablecloth, which was, must have been 60 foot long, with uh, gold-embroidered screaming Iraqi eagles all down the centre, which I gave to Elizabeth, and we were going to try and turn it, in, see if we could turn it into bed sheets. But uh, it was it was quite spectacular. I know I uh, I did a fair bit of um, liberating. I think uh, we like souvenirs only, though. I don't think there was m there was much there after all the rest of the world press got through the. the press. Yeah, yeah. You've just listened to snippets from my interviews with Innocent Matanga, Tertius Myberg, Bruno Hansen and David Fox. Now, it's Christmas Eve and what a year it's been. So I'd just like to wish you all the very best for the festive season and of course for 2021. Stay safe and keep listening. <laughs>